This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. I want to thank you all for coming out here. Uh, my day wouldn't be the same without you here, so thank you for coming out here. Uh, I look forward to learning with you today and every time we learn. Important announcement, we will not be having any classes until June 1st. Um, in, I'm sorry. <laughs> in other news... Um, I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshiva Beth and Partners Detroit for setting up this beautiful Lunch and Learn and for constantly providing exemplary Jewish educational opportunities for our community. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app. It's also a website. And it's filled with amazing Torah content from thousands and thousands of creators and enough hours that you cannot watch all the Torah Anytime, even if you are watching it on double speed. So... Give it a shot. Try to prove me wrong. I'd be happy to have somebody come and say, I, I did. I listened to all of it in double speed, and I'm done. Okay? If you've done your homework, we'll give you other homework at the end. Alrighty, let's get started with this week's Torah portion. Now, some of you did point out there was some sort of flyer that went out about the super 48 ways of being a super person. We're not doing that class. Complicated. Maybe we'll do it in the summer. We might just do a series in July. So far, we have nothing on the calendar for July. Maybe we'll become superhumans in July. In the meantime, let's talk about this week's Torah portion. In this week's Torah portion, which is called Parshas Emor, we have a lot of the laws that deal with the Kohanim. The Parsha starts off with Emor. Here we go, let's open it up. Vayomer Hashem al Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, Emor el Kohanim b'nei Aaron v'amarta aleim. You shall say to the Kohanim, the children of Aaron, and you shall explain to them the following laws. And it goes through most of the laws of being a Kohen. Now, who are the Kohanim? The Kohanim are the children of Aaron. They were chosen to serve in the temple and in the Migdash. Okay? When Hashem saw the incredible dedication that Aaron had, that even though his brother, his younger brother, was chosen to be the leader that would lead the Jewish people out, Aaron was overjoyed for his younger brother and went out with joy to assist him in any way that he could. Hashem said, this is the kind of people I want assisting me. If your attitude is not, oh, it's not fair, why did my younger brother get picked? It's not fair, this, I should have the job. If your attitude is, wow, that's amazing, my younger brother got such an incredible opportunity to be the spokesperson for God, to be the one who will lead the Jewish people out. What an amazing thing. What can I do to help? That's the people Hashem say, I want your people to be my helpers. In general, in every situation, okay, in the corporate world, in the family world, in almost all walks of life, there are those that complain, and there are those who say, what can I do to help? Right? And it's always those who say, what can I do that, to help, that end up finding positions of leadership. We recently lost, here in the community, one of the great, incredible women of valor, I'm just, Ann Newman. Ann Newman was an incredible woman. Very dedicated to supporting the community and education. But a little story about her is, is so instructive to how we have to look at life. She was living in Israel after the war. I believe she was born in Hungary, although I'm not sure. I believe she was born in Europe, and after the war she came to Israel. She's living in Israel, and she became a bookkeeper there. She ended up meeting her husband. Her husband, Mr. Newman, was a, uh, an American pilot who came over to assist the Israelis during the War of Independence, when as soon as we declared our independence, seven countries said, not so fast, we're going to crush you and destroy you and put you back in the, in the sea where you Jews belong, right? We always talk, just recently, one of the congresswomen, Rashid Taleb, was talking about the Nakba. The Nakba. The Nakba is supposedly this ethnic cleansing how about we look at history? As soon as Israel declared the state that was given to it by the UN, seven countries came to attack it and throw it into the water. Talk about genocide. 
literally, they were singing that they would push the Jews into the water and destroy the Jewish people. Okay, but her husband, Mr. Newman, was an American pilot. He came over to help the Israeli fledgling Haganah, Lechi, Etzel, whatever they had over there. She ended up meeting him. They ended up going out, dating, and getting married. She moves back to America with her husband. She doesn't speak English. She speaks Hungarian, and she speaks Hebrew. Now her husband goes back to work. She has nothing to do, so she says, let me get a job. She starts looking around in the newspaper, and everyone she, every job she applies to, they say, I'm sorry, you don't speak English? We can't, you don't read it, we can't hire you. So one day, she, she, with the help of her husband, she finds an ad in the paper, a company called F.W. Kerr, a pharmaceutical company, was looking for a janitor. She says, ah, a janitor. I don't speak English, but I speak broom. So she applies for the job as a janitor. Now in those days, there was no such thing as a female janitor. Right? It was, uh, it was a male privilege. Only men were janitors back in the 1950s. So when she applied for the job, they looked at her and said, come on, you can't be a janitor, you're a woman. She said, look, I'm begging you. No one will give me a job. I don't know how they spoke. She communicated with a broken English. She said, no one will give me a job. I, I don't speak the language fluently. I, I can't, no one will, can you please, I'm begging you. I will be your best janitor. Your place will be cleaned. There won't be a speck of dust. It will be, every night I'll come in, I'll make sure when you come in the next morning, it'll be perfect. They said, okay, fine. They hired her. So here she is, Mrs. Ann Newman, working as a janitor at this company called F.W. Curb. Now, as time goes by, she was the best janitor. The place was spick and span every single day. And she didn't miss work. She didn't come in late. The dog never ate her bus ticket. She didn't have her uncle's funeral for the third time this month. You know what I'm saying? Like, she was there, she was reliable. Now, she was a bookkeeper. And besides, she didn't speak English, but she knew numbers. And sometimes the accountants, or the bookkeepers for F.W. Kerr, <coughs> would leave their books open when they got stumped, and they just said, okay, it's 5 o'clock, I'm going to go home, I'll figure it out tomorrow. Or maybe sometimes they, they actually had some mistakes in their books. Now, it wouldn't take her the full, let's say, 8 hours to clean the place, so she would take a look around, and she would notice there were some mistakes in the bookkeeping, and there were things that were left undone. Now, she could have said, it's not my job. No one's paying me to be a bookkeeper here. You want me to be a bookkeeper here, you should be paying me double. No, she said, look, there's, there's something with this company that is not being done right. Let me fix it. So she, at night, she would help fix the books. If she saw some mistakes, she would fix them. If she saw things that were left undone, the books weren't finished, there was stuff left, a stack done that was, was not, had not been completed, she would complete it. No one asked her to. She saw a problem. She created a solution. Eventually, people started wondering, what is going on? Is there a fairy accountant coming in here every night and fixing our books? And finally, someone like, asked her, like, do you, is anybody coming in here at night and working on the books? She says, I do. They say, how do you know how to do this? She says, I'm a bookkeeper. This is what I study. This is what I am. He said, you're a bookkeeper? She says, yeah. So said, you know what? We actually need it. We need an extra bookkeeper in the bookkeeping department. Would you be okay with leaving janitorial services and going to bookkeeping? She says, let me think about it for a second. Yeah. Yes. So now she starts working as a bookkeeper. And she's an incredible bookkeeper. She shows up early. She stays late. The dog never eats her bus ticket. She doesn't go to her uncle's funerals three times a month. She doesn't complain about when they give her more work. As a matter of fact, when other people in the, in the accounting department are having trouble, she helps them out. Even when they don't ask, she says, let me, let me help you with this project. I see you've got your whole month, you know, the month end to put together. Can I help you with that? Oh, of course you could. And before you know it, not only is she a bookkeeper, they promote her to the head of the entire accounting department. So she's now a head of a department at a pretty significant pharmaceutical manufacturing company here in Michigan. Quick pause for great thanks to the good Lord above for creating water 
and all the other ingredients that create Coke Zero. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Olam Shakol Niyabed Baro. Amen. So now she's doing the counting, and she realizes there's a little thing going on with marketing. They're not getting their... She's doing the accounting, so she sees what dollars are going towards marketing, and she realizes they're not getting their bang for their buck in marketing. So she puts together a plan. She calls a couple marketing agencies. She puts together a whole plan without being asked. She just noticed that something was broken. Instead of saying, well, it's not my job, she says, well, I noticed there's something broken here. She puts together a comprehensive plan how they could save 15 20% on their marketing budget and get a better ad campaign and strategy, and she comes to present it to the leadership. This is amazing. This is brilliant. Of course we should do this. Everyone agrees. She does that once. She does it twice. Before you know it, they say, hey, would you mind doing accounting and marketing? She says, let me think about it for a moment. Yes, gladly. So now she's doing accounting and she's doing marketing. But because of that, because of accounting and marketing, a lot of the legal transactions are coming across her desk and she's noticing that their legal is leaving them open to certain liabilities. So she starts working with the legal team. Before you know it, they say, would you like to be involved in legal? Yes, of course. And before you know it, they ask her if she would be the CEO of the company. And she says, let me think about it for a moment. Yes. She became the CEO of the company. She eventually um, became a partial owner of the Pistons during their heyday, right? She was a very successful woman. Now, obviously, there's a lot of siyat deshmaya. Hashem helped her out, but let's call a spade a spade. Hashem helps those who help themselves. She did the right things there. She was not the kind of person who said, why didn't you give me more? And I, you didn't give me, I, just literally right now on the way over, I was listening to a podcast about the economics of the influencer industry. I'm considering becoming an influencer. <laughs> I'll be making TikTok, dance videos, and product, uh, you know, beard combing, you know, uh, beard products. I'm going to do all kinds of influencer videos on how to keep your beard soft. Now that I have a beard, I'm going to make big money off of sponsorships. I was listening to a podcast on... Uh, on on the economics of the influencer, I, I, I don't really, I don't follow a single influencer in the world, but I know they exist. Um, and they were talking about the economics of the influencing industry. And, and of course, what do they have to talk about? How there's racism and there's thisism, and the, and the, and and most of the people making money are able-bodied people. There's very few people with disabilities who are making high amounts of money, and and it's mostly younger people. Wow! Did somebody realize that? Yeah, believe it or not, for some reason, in Hollywood also. There's not many actresses or actors in Hollywood who are over the age of 80 making millions of dollars for every film. I wonder why. But it's race. Of course, it's, that's ageism, right? If you're not paying your 85-year-old actresses the same amount of money as you're paying Tom Cruise or whatever it is, you must be. You're, you must be. You're, you're discriminating. So, I'm thinking like the amount of energy that people use, crying out how you owe me more and you didn't give me what I deserve and I should be getting this and you're not giving me this. They would be so much more productive if they put all that energy into just being better, being awesome, being amazing. Success will follow. The story of the story of Aaron Akoin is a story of a person who got passed over. He was a prophet, but his younger brother was given a bigger and better role. And his response was not, it's not fair. His response was, why did you pass over me? His response was, roll up my sleeves. Joyfully celebrate the successes of others and ask, what can I do to help? And God says, you, your people will be on my helpers forever. That is the story of Kohanim. Because of that, Kohanim have a unique role in Judaism. Now, certain Jews who call their thinking progressive or enlightened have decided to abolish the system of Kohen, Levi, and Yisrael. They've decided that that's all, that's all discrimination. We shouldn't have different groups. So, no such thing as a Kohen, Levi, and Yisrael. Right? There is no Birchas Kohanim. Remember Ozer Levine over here, he's like, 
Who goes up and praises and then blesses the people? Nobody. Because we don't have any discrimination, no differences. But one thing we have to remember, here's an, just, just an idea. When somebody does something, good, bad, or indifferent, we have to understand that our actions have effects. And our effects are not just in the moment, but they can, they can boil down for hundreds and thousands of years. Someone once came to the Chavetz Chaim, and he was about to make a pretty significant error. And the Chavetz Chaim said to him, let me ask you a question. I'm, I'm a Kohen. Right? Rabbi Yisrael, Mayor, HaKagan, HaKohen, Kagan. He was a Kohen. He says, I'm a Kohen. Do you know why I'm a Kohen and you're not? Because the other man was a Yisrael. He said, no. So, I, mean, I mean, because your father was a Kohen. And <laughs> my father wasn't. He says, that's good. I like that. Why was your father a Kohen, my father a Kohen, and your father not? He says, well, because... Your grandfather was a Kohen, and my grandfather was not. He says, oh, good. Do you know why my grandfather was a Kohen, and your grandfather was not? Because your great-grandfather was a Kohen? My grandfather? Yeah, good. Do you know why? See, he says, finally, man says, what, what are you getting at? Like, what do you want to say? The Chavetz Chaim says, I'll tell you why. I'm a Kohen, and you're not. Because my great, 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 great grandfather, at one point, when all the Jewish people were dancing around the eagle, the golden calf, and Moses said, whoever wants to be on God's side, come to me. My great, 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 great grandfather stepped up, and yours didn't. Our actions, <laughs> they're not small actions. The things we do, the prayers we say, the way we use our time, these all roll through generations. I'll give you another example. There was recently, it's fascinating, it's only in America. There was recently legislation, I don't know where it's holding right now, it's up, it's down, but there was legislation that was going to be put forward that if you had a good credit score, of like 760 or above, you were going to be charged one extra percent on your mortgages. And if you had a poor credit score, right, like, I don't know, 580 or below, whatever it was, you would get a 1.5% discount on your mortgage. Then one and a half less than it would have been. You, am I wrong? Irv, the treasurer here. It took effect? It's actually law right now? Whoa! It's in law right now. This law is the currently effective law in America and has not been struck. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. I thought it was like it was being put out, it was being championed. So you're telling me, okay, so let's, let's understand a little bit. What gives you a good credit score? Being responsible. Being responsible. Does it, do you get a good credit score if you're rich? No. I know people who are rich who have bad credit scores because they're irresponsible. You get a good credit score by being responsible. Okay? I know many people who have credit scores in the 800s who have never been wealthy in their life. But you know what they've done? They haven't borrowed more than they can afford. They haven't put money on credit cards that they couldn't afford. They pay down their credit cards every month. They take care of their mortgage every month. And these people have a good credit score. How do you have a bad credit score? You take on debt that you can't afford. So what are we saying right now? We're saying we're going to reward people who have been irresponsible. It's got nothing to do with wealth. I mean, as a matter of fact, the craziest thing is you could have a person who has a high net worth individual. Just He was responsible with his money. He blew up his credit card. Look, I got a friend of mine. He's now doing very well. But at one point, he was hyper irresponsible, and he had to claim bankruptcy. He walked away. He just blew his credit cards up. He was not being responsible at the time. He was a younger kid. He was whatever it was. But he ended up spending money like, like a drunken sailor on his credit card that he didn't have. And then eventually he was crushed under seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 of credit card debt. So what did he do? He claimed bankruptcy. He walked away from it. And he was still able to buy a home a few years later. But, but he had to pay a higher, a higher rate because he was irresponsible. But now we're saying, no, no, no. We got you. 
Now, here's an amazing thing. What are some of the factors that would make somebody be responsible with their money? Perhaps it would be if they grew up in a home where people were responsible with their money. Maybe if from the very the time he was a young child, his parents were frugal. They didn't spend money they didn't have. They made sure they paid down their debts. And they taught their children the values of being frugal, of being thrifty, of being financially responsible. And how do you think maybe that person would be frugal and financially responsible? The parents, because maybe they grew up at home. Behaviors that we inculcate in our families, whether it be frugality and thriftiness and responsibility and self-sovereignty, or whether they be happiness and joy and praise of others. Or, on the flip side, maybe the person who's totally irresponsible with their debt, they grew up in a home where they were totally irresponsible with their debt. And that people grew up in a home where they were totally irresponsible with their debt. It's multi-generational. How about negativity and critical criticism? Some people grow up being very critical. Why? Because they grew up in a home where the father was always criticizing everything. From the politics to the rabbi to the president of the shul to this to that. The father did not have a good word to say about anybody. He was criticizing everybody. So the kids grow up. They criticize everybody. Character traits, they pass down through generations. The kohanim, they are supposed to be treated differently. Because for generations, they were bequeathed an incredible gift of character by their great, 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 great grandfather Aaron, the high priest. And throughout the generations, they continued to work on themselves, to be in the temple, to serve the people for generations. There's a value in that. And we have to recognize that. And to say, we're not going to, no, there's no differences between people. Everyone's the same. No, everybody's not the same. That's not to say, here's the amazing thing in Judaism, just to understand something. If you grow up, we, first of all, we say like this, a mamzer tamar chacham is greater than a kohen, ama, a kohen gadol ama aretz, which means, if you are a mamzer, you're born of an illicit relation, okay? What we call a bastard, a child who is born of an illicit relation, but you study Torah all the time, you are greater than a kohen gadol, a high priest, who doesn't study, who doesn't learn. And there were times throughout Jewish history where there was such a thing, because during the Second Temple there were times where people could buy the seat of the Kohen Gadol. Right? This is not how we look at you as an individual. This is how we look at the fact that there was something bequeathed to your people, the efforts, the investment that Aaron HaKohen made 3,000 years ago are still paying off. The investments that, if I make today investments in my children, right? If I make investments today in my children, they should be happy people. They should be generous people. I hope it will be paying off for generations to come. It gives a sense of responsibility to what I do. So that is the idea of the, of the kahuna. Now, of course, there, the Torah, actually, there's a mitzvah in the Torah to sanctify the Kohen and give him preference. For example, if we were to be making a zimun, a zimun is a special benching preface. There's Birkas HaMazon, benching. There's a little preface before it called the zimun that you do when you have three people who eat together, three men who eat together. It's called a zimun. If one of the people in the Zimun is a Kohen, you're supposed to give the Kohen to be the leader. In the synagogue, the first Aliyah is given to the Kohen. Now, fascinating. You want to hear just fascinating tidbits? You could look at different history and you could find out just like little amazing tidbits. This is a question that was raised in the city of Bologna, Bologna, in Italy. And how many years ago was it? Um, here. Listen to this fascinating. Listen to this fascinating case that was actually brought up. There was a synagogue in Bologna that had a custom that on the on Shabbos Bereshis, the first Shabbos of the year, they would auction off the first aliyah, the first the first aliyah, and 
Whoever, people would pay a fortune for it because it was the first Aliyah. You're starting off the Torah, so to speak. You're starting off the Torah. You're reading the very first, Bereshus, Baralokim, Eshashamayim, Vesaretz. In the beginning of creation, God created heavens and earth. Okay, fine. So that's an amazing thing. And it's a very special opportunity. And people would pay a very, very hefty sum for it to be able to be called up to the, uh, to the Torah for the very, to start off and inaugurate this year's Torah study. And they would use that money to pay for lighting in the synagogue throughout the year. They would raise a tremendous amount of money. Now, listen to this. So if there was a Kohen in the synagogue, he was allowed to bid on it, of course. And if he bid the highest bid, he would get called up for it. What if a non-Kohen bid and won the bid? So the halacha is that you're supposed to really, you're not supposed to, you're supposed to give the Kohen first, the Aliyah. But the Kohanim, whoever, if, if it was not a Kohen who won the bid, then the Kohanim would walk out. This way there would be no Kohanim in the room. They would call up this person who had won the bid, and then as soon as they would start the, the Aliyah, the Kohanim would come back in. Until one year, that guy. You know that guy? We all know that guy. That one guy said, you know what? I'm a Kohen. I want the Aliyah. And I'm not bidding for it. But guess what? You have to give it to me. Because Allah says you have to give the Kohen first. And I'm not walking out. Okay? This is a true story. They didn't know what to do. Because this is how they raised money to keep the lights out in the synagogue the whole year. So, he said, I will not be walking out. You are not allowed to give anybody else the Aliyah if there's a Kohen in the room. Take, do, do, go, go, go take a long walk off a short pier. So what do the people do? They took a long walk. But not off a short pier. They went to the local rulers of the city of Bologna. Because those are the people who had the power. And they explained the whole situation. And you have to remember, throughout the years, there was always different types of relationships. There were times where they had more favorable relationships with the non-Jewish leaders. There were times where they had less favorable relationships with the non-Jewish leaders. And this time they had a better, they had a more favorable relationship. And they explained to the, 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 the count, or whatever it was, the Duke of Bologna, they explained to him that they, this is their custom, and this is how they keep the lights on in the synagogue. And this guy is just being obstinate. <laughs> So, the, the head, the non-Jewish head of the city of Bologna told, sent a message to this Kohen, either you make sure you get yourself out of the synagogue or you're being arrested and thrown in prison. Isn't this fascinating? Way? Just like little tidbits, a little opening, open window into Jewish life in Italy 300 years ago. So then there was a massive debate, did they do the right thing or not? Did they do the right thing or not? By engaging, especially engaging a non-Jewish source to be able to sort of mediate this. The majority opinion, though, is they did the right thing. Okay, that's the bottom line. And especially because he could have gone to any synagogue he wanted. and there was, there was many other synagogues in Bologna. He just specifically wanted to be in this synagogue to make trouble. So Anyway, but the Kohen is supposed to be treated with better conditions. And even though some would say, it's not fair, why are we treating the Kohen? What, why, is, why is he better than me? The answer is, he inherited an upgraded status. And why Hashem made you in the body of the Kohen and him in the body of the non-Kohen, that I don't know. When you get to heaven, you can ask God, why did you make me born a Yisrael? I wanted to be born a Kohen. And God will, of course, say to you, by the way, you are a Yisrael. All you have to do is learn Torah. And a Mamzer Yisrael is better than a Kohen Gadol who doesn't learn Torah. So I gave you all kinds of opportunities for greatness. But if you want to be the person who's sitting and complaining, why not me? You, why do you, if, if you're the kind of person who's complaining, why didn't you give me the greatness? You're exactly not the right person to be a Kohen. Because the way the Kohens became Kohens is because Aaron didn't say, why not me? Okay, now. Let's cover something next. And this is actually a very important topic, I feel... As today's age, and I think I've spoken about this in previous years, but I'm just going to crack at it again. In this week's portion, it says,
In this week's portion, portion, it says in chapter 21, verse 16, Parak Aleph Pasuk Tes Zion. Hashem spoke to Moses saying, Dabrel Aaron Lamar, speak to Aaron saying, Ish Mizarachaladorosam, a man from your children for their generations, Asher Yiabomum, who will have in him a mum, a blemish. Lo Yikrav, he shall not come near to the altar to offer offerings. Ish Iver, a blind person, O Piseach, or a lame person, O Charum, or a man whose nose has no bridge. Right? O Sarua, or a man who has one limb longer than the other. And then it goes through a long list of various ailments or physical disformities that would disqualify one from serving in the temple. Now, Yesterday I was talking to people, I said, there's all kinds of laws in the Torah. There's two main categories, there's chukim and mishpatim. Chukim are laws we just don't understand, but God said so, so we follow it. There's mishpatim, there are laws that God said so and it kind of makes sense, and we follow it. We follow them both, but some we understand, some we don't. I don't understand why God does not want me to wear wool linen, but He said so, so every time I buy a suit, I bring it over to the shotness checker, sometimes they find a little bit of linen in the collar, i got to take it out, i got to bring it to the tailor. Why? Because God said no wool and linen together. You know what else God said? No meat and milk together. Alrighty. No cheeseburgers for me. We finally, our family found a solution. We were eating the Impossible Burgers with cheese. And they're quite good. Until somehow I was sitting next to Rabbi Simcha Tolwin from Aish. And his wife happens to be a nutritionist. She said, we were, ta- I don't, we, we, we talk, we were talking about the Impossible Burgers. He says, you know that those things are just one big glob of saturated fat. Why do you think they taste so good? He says, my wife's a nutritionist. Those things are terrible for you. He says, don't you feel so tired after you eat? And I'm like, you know what? You're exactly right. Sometimes my wife would serve one for dinner. By the time dinner was over, I'm like, I need to go lay down and take a nap. Because <laughs> I just ate a globule of fat that looks like a burger. Okay, so probably no more impossible burgers with cheese at our house. But maybe we'll have them for occasional. But <laughs> only once in a while can we eat a big glob of saturated fat. In any case, so there are certain laws that we don't understand. There's certain laws that we do understand. The law, by raise of hand, the law that a Kohen who has a disformity, one of his arms was born, you know, missing. He had like a mutated arm and his arm is short. You know, his arm is missing three fingers or whatever it is. He can't serve in the temple. Is that a law? Okay, we're going to have a raise of hands. If it's a law that you understand that makes sense, raise your hand. If it's a law that you don't understand, raise your hand. A lot of people are not raising their hand at all. You guys are non-compliant. <laughs> Let's try it again. If, it's, if, it's, if the, the Torah says if you've got any kind of physical disformity, you don't have a bridge on your nose, right? You're not allowed to serve in the temple. If, if that's a law that makes sense to you, raise your hand. If it's a law that does not make sense to you, raise your hand. Okay, alrighty. We've got about even, about even. I'm going to try right now to uh, sway you guys to the other side. Alrighty. Many of you have been to England. I, I, I didn't say you. I said many of you. That doesn't only include you. <laughs> many of you have been to England. If you've been to England, maybe you've been to the Change of the Guards, which is quite a impressive display. You have all these guards, and depending on what day of the week it is and what different special occasions, it could be just dozens, it could be hundreds. And you have all these people in their, in their uniforms, their bright red tunics with the black pants and the huge bearskin hats and the shiny gold buttons, perfectly shined. I mean, we're talking about these guys, you got to see the way these guys come to work. No one shows up to work with you know, a stain. Oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> on the way to work I got some coffee on it. No, 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 no siree. No siree! These guys show up, they're, and they're all standing in line, and they're perfectly at attention, and they've got their guns, they're holding them, and then they march in perfect unison, right? And then, you can't really understand what they're saying, but they're yelling and shouting and screaming, and, and they start, and they stop, and they go, and they, the whole ceremony, right? And there's, you know, dozens of them, and they're lined up, ten abreast, or whatever it is, right? And lines of them. Now, you know what you notice? They all look so uniform. They don't have any, any people who are very, very short. 
They don't have any people who are very, very, very tall. Right? There's, there's no seven foot. Like no one retired from the NBA and went to go work as a king's guard, as a queen's guard. Right? They don't have any six foot five people, and they don't have any five foot two people. They don't. You know what else they don't have? They don't have any overly obese people, and they don't have anybody overly skinny. If you want to be in the Queen's Guard, you've got to meet a certain criteria. Your maximum height is this, minimum height is this, maximum weight is this, minimum weight is, this, minimum weight is this. Why? Because it's about honoring the Queen. And for the Queen, it looks most impressive when there's a uniformity. When everyone is standing there and they're just like, wow. If you could imagine, let's imagine you were to show up one day to the Queen's Guard. And out come 20 soldiers. One of them is coming out with a walker. The one next to him is 3 foot 11. Very short. Again, I'm not, there's, there's nothing wrong with him. But that's just, he was born with that mutation. He's short. The guy next to him is seven foot three and like 180 pounds, right? Like he's like a French fry, you know. And then next to him is another person who's 580 pounds and he's in one of those special carts, you know, with the with the with the machine, you know, the the backwards and forwards. <laughs> could you imagine that? It would be like now you could be like, wow, that's like I'm so I'm so glad that, that people are being given job, but it's not the right it's not the right place. Not for honoring the queen. Same thing goes for when it comes to God. God has a house of worship. That house of worship is meant to instill awe, fear, love, devotion, all kinds of emotions in people when they come to the house of the Lord. And if they show up to the house of the Lord and it's, it's all over the place, it will not have the same impression upon them. It will not strike the same tone of awe. In the house of the Lord, everyone had a uniform. It was exactly the same uniform. If you have a Kohen who shows up, he says, but I love purple. When I was in college, when I was in, in, in my master's program for social work, we had a professor. The entire semester, she only wore purple. From her hairbands... <laughs> To her shoes, from the top, from the from her capilla to her fisula, she only wore purple every single day for the entire semester. I never saw her in anything other than purple. Let's imagine she was a Cohen man, and she shows up to work one day, and what's she wearing? She's wearing the Cohen tunic, but just in a beautiful lavender. Sorry, ma'am, you can't go to work, but but I, this is the only way I feel comfortable. It's not about you. It's not about you. This is the house of God. And therefore, to bring about the greatest reverence, the greatest awe, the greatest power of this building, we have a code, a uniform code. You can do amazing, great things. Remember we said, we said a Yisrael, who's a mamzer, is greater than a Kohen Gadol, who's an Amaretz. So if a person is born and they have a cleft lip or they have a, 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 a missing part of, the, a part of their arm, they can become the greatest Torah scholar. There's a lot of things they can do. They can't serve in the temple. It's not fair. Why don't you let me serve? Is this about you or is this about God? If it's about God, we want it to be the most awe-inspiring. When the Kohanim come out for their service, there's a uniformity to them. They come out. It's like, wow. And we can't have that when it's a motley crew all over the place. If it was about you, then we should do it. But guess what? It's not about you. This is the temple. This is the house of the Lord. And it's about Him. That's why the Queen's Guard is called the Queen's Guard. It's not Michael and Frank's club where they get to hang out and wear cool uniforms. If it was Michael and Frank's club, then how dare you exclude Michael if he's too tall, and how dare you exclude Frank if he's too short? But guess what? It's not Michael and Frank's club. It's the Queen's Guard. And then it's about the Queen. And then it's an honor to serve, but only in a way in which you're going to bring the greatest honor to the Queen. And if you're not, you say, 
I'll find other ways to be of service to the queen. I can't be a, a, a queen's guard standing on guard in front of Buckingham Palace. Fine. If I really love the queen, I'll find another way to serve her. I'll find another way to bring honor to the crown. Not in a way that would create maybe a slight dishonor to the crown. And now we come to a very, very important idea that is important for understanding today's world. There is, there is a condition today. Hold on, I've got to just make sure I get it right. I want to get it right. There is a condition today called body integrity identity disorder. What does this mean? Body integrity means how complete your body is. Identity disorder, we, we know what that is. The body integrity identity disorder, which has been already, there's been literature about this going back over 15 years, which now people are, are, are changing. They want to change the term to make the new term called transabled, which means I'm fully functioning. My entire body is a fully functioning body, but I identify as a disabled person. This sounds crazy, but it exists. These people will often put themselves in wheelchairs and, 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 and strap their legs into... There, there actually are cases where a guy literally hacked his arm off because he identified as, as being disabled and he, his whole body, but he had a body integrity. So that was an identity disorder. It was creating a problem because his entire body was able-bodied, but he identified as disabled. And it got so bad that he felt so much not in sync with who he was that he chopped off his arm. There are people today who have other people pushing them around in wheelchairs all day. They're fully able to get up and walk out of their wheelchair, but but they identify as disabled. And it's a growing movement. People identifying as disabled. How do we feel about this? Now, here is the key. Because this is going to be the key to understanding a lot of other things in society. And when you take things out to the extremes to explain the means, okay? Society is made up of the entire populace. And you have this bell curve, right? The bell curve describes the people within standard deviations, okay? So standard deviations within the first two, uh, what's it called? The first two deviations away. What's the phrase for that in math? Uh, the first, when you have, you have the middle, and then you have one standard deviation away, two, it's deviations, is that what it's called? Deviation from the mean. Yeah, okay. So within the first two deviations from the mean, you have 95% of the people. Okay? So you have a bell curve. I'm just I'm talking mathematics-wise, okay? You have a bell curve. Here is the mean. Here is the middle. Then the first, the first movement away from the middle, and all these are uniform moves, Right? Every, every certain, a certain amount of whatever, <laughs> it's called one standard deviation away from the mean will cover about 65% of people. Two standard deviations away from the mean will cover about 95% of people. And then you could have more and more and more and more. I think it's more and more and more extreme. Okay? Society can only thrive when the extremes have to suffer for the means. Otherwise, the means suffer for the extremes. What do I mean by that? Okay. We have, uh, there are in America, there's the law, the Americans Disabilities Act, right? And those are great rules. It's important that restaurants should have access to people who are in wheelchairs. That's very, very important. There should be bathroom access to people with wheelchairs and with other disabilities. And by the way, that's because there are actually a pretty decent amount of people. Let's imagine a person has a disability in which they can only lie flat. And there are disabilities like this. People have certain severe cases of vertigo, whatever it is. They can only lie flat on their back. Do we now have to make every restaurant have... Chairs and tables that are suspended in the air for the person who's lying flat on his back to be able to sit and have a meal feeling like he's like everybody else. 
It's, it's absurd, right? You guys are with me? It's absurd. Absurd. Uh, what do you mean? You're discriminating. Everyone else is able to come and sit at a right angle to their table and have a meal. And me, I'm lying flat on my back. You don't even have, you have no chairs in here for people who are lying flat on their back? There's no tables suspended in the seal, on the roof for you to serve me from? I don't understand. What's wrong with you? You're violating my rights. Now again, if there was 17% of the population was lying flat on their backs, we would do it on our own. We would learn how to create special tables for them. But it's a tiny percentage of the population that is only able to lie flat on their backs. We can't rearrange our entire airplanes and restaurants and stadiums and everything for that tiny population. Now we say, is it fair to them? Is it fair to the people who could only lie flat on their backs that we don't have planes with lie flat beds automatically for free for everybody or if they want one in the front you can pay for one six thousand dollars but right we understand it is not reasonable what that means is now what about the person who's lying flat on their back we say to them we love you we care about you we're sorry that you're going through this difficult situation but we can't change over our entire society to make your particular tiny population, sliver of the population more comfortable because it will just cost the rest of the population everything. So that's what's called the extremes. This is an extreme rare disease. People who can only lie flat on their back because they have certain forms of vertigo have to suffer. We're not, they're not going to be able to have everything like the people in the means. Because if we have to do the other way, then we say, no, every single restaurant has to be set up with at least Two, two tables suspended in the air for the live flat people, and every airplane has to have, a, you know, we have to change our entire airplanes. One side has to be for these people. Then everything becomes more expensive. Everything becomes more onerous. Every restaurant's going to be charging more. Our entire life changes. We understand that. I'll give you another example. There are people in the world who have a severe form of hemophilia, which means they can bleed out very easily. And they have to be extraordinarily careful. Maybe we should make a rule that you're not allowed to have anything sharp in society. Because you realize you're killing these people with hemophilia. Oh, so they, they're not allowed to go in certain places. You're saying they can't go to the ball game in the stadium. Because in the stadium, there's right angles in the chairs, and some of the chairs could... You know, there's, there's stuff... No one prepared the stadium for the guy with hemophilia. When he leaves at home, he has such a severe form of hemophilia that when he lives at home, there's only round surfaces in his entire house. The entire house. They have a specialized house for his unique needs. There's only round surfaces or ovals, but he's going to go to the stadium. He's going to for sure die. So wait, you're saying he can't go to the stadium? He might get, he might get pricked by something on the road and just bleed out? So We can't change all of our stadiums to be only round surfaces for the person who might hit a, get a snag on a right degree angle. We can't prepare everything for everybody all the time. Are you guys with me? So let's remember the rule here. Either the extremes, people with extreme, extremely rare disorders, challenges, whether they be mental or physical, are going to have to suffer. And they're not going to be able to get everything that's going to make them feel comfortable. But that's in order to protect and let the rest of the, of the, the means, the vast majority of people, the 98.8% of people, have normal comfortable lives. Or we say everyone's life has to be changed over. Every restaurant has to have suspended tables. Every, every single room in the world has to be only round surfaces. No sharp surfaces. We can't sell knives anymore. Nothing anymore because there might be a hemophiliac who gets hurt. Do you see what I'm talking about? The Kohen. It, it is not common for a Kohen to have a mum. But if it is, if a Kohen has a mum, we say we're really sorry. You are the extreme on the end, and if you come to service in the temple, it's, it's not going to be a good look for God. It's going to be a weird-looking you know, uh, groupage, and it, it, it won't be a great honor to God. So we have to say, I'm sorry. Find, you can find many other ways to serve God, and God would love you forever for that. We can't turn over the entire society to help the 1%. We have to have, we do as much as we can. We try. But at a certain point, we say, I'm sorry, you're the 1%, and you're going to have to suffer. <laughs> you're going to have to suffer. We'll do whatever we can to try to help you as much. But if you're going to demand absolute equal everything, you're just not going to get it. 
What if you have a Kohen who's you know, entirely immobilized and now we have to get a robot exoskeleton because the only thing that can work is his brain, but there is such a robot, so maybe he should come to the, the temple and serve in a, in a robot exoskeleton. Like, meaning, where does it go? Like, how far do we go? How far do we go out on the, on the curve? In Judaism, there's a certain recognition of this. There are times that there are people who, and we, we, we feel for them, but we can't have the entirety of society dance to the tune of the 1% or 2% because it's just the costs to all of society are too costly and it's going to destroy the fabric of society. I believe a lot of what we're seeing in the world right now, and I think everyone here knows what I'm talking about, is exactly this situation. There's a small percentage of society that may have some sort of disorder, we, could you imagine everybody who says, well, I feel disordered, I identify as being crippled, and therefore now we need to hire people to carry me around. And the government should pay for this, of course, right? Can you imagine someone said that? Like, there is, again, there is something called body integrity identity disorder. A guy says, I am disabled. No, no you're not, sir. <laughs> no, but I identify as disabled. And, what, and the kind of disability I have, I require two people with me at all times to push me around, pick me up, put me on my bed, and the government has to pay for it. They've they got to pay for my medical care. I mean, could you imagine that? But you identify as, as disabled. Sometimes we have to say, I'm sorry you feel that way. We're not going to be able to play to that tune, or else we're going to destroy our entire society. So we're just going to say, we're sorry. We're here to be helpful and supportive. If you need some counseling, whatever it is, we're here for you. But we're not going to change over everybody in society to meet the one percenters on the extreme edges. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes MR. Let's recap really quickly. We learned... Aaron became Aaron by saying, instead of saying, why didn't you pick me, by saying, I'm so happy for you, what can I do to help? And that's something, what we do in our lives, what Aaron did in his lives, what we do in our lives, has effects for generations. We work with positivity and joy. We teach that to our children. They teach it to their children. Whatever, And that's why the Kohanim are special. Because they were ready to stand with Moses when they defended God. And because Aaron was Varach of Asamach Belibo, Aaron was happy for, for Moses. And they have that in their genes. And that's why there is a difference between a Kohen and an Israel. Even though now, maybe thousands of years later, it is something they inherit down to their children. You can inherit down greatness to your children too by being great and the importance of understanding that when the Kohen is not able to serve in the temple because he is disabled, right? It is not a, I can't understand why, it's I should be able to understand why. And I understand that God is saying for us to create a society that has awe and reverence, we have to have certain standards and those standards are not necessarily going to always match everybody's reality, but that creates a society with standards as opposed to a society with no standards. And a society with standards is much better for everybody. And even though at the edges, some people are not going to feel most comfortable or accepted, hopefully we can teach them to be able to learn to live and appreciate and thrive with their disabilities or their disorders, but we can't change over and become a society with no standards. So for the greater good, we create this situation. And it's not a chok. The fact that the Torah says these people cannot serve, it's a mishpat. It makes sense. Um, and I mean, you can still discuss it, debate it, have great conversations about it. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for being awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.